Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What is the first brand you remember as a young girl making an impact on you? This also sounds cliche, um, but I was obsessed with Nike. Obsessed. Like, I ha- I'm no lie. I had Nike ear uh, earrings. I had Nike necklace. I had Nike rings. I had all Nike clothes, obviously Nike shoes. I took a sewing class in high school and I would, I would screen print and cut out Nike swoosh symbols. Like, I think I was probably the first person making counterfeit products. I think <laughs> Phil Knight might come and send me a cease and desist letter because I was making counterfeit products, but I was just obsessed. Like it had a hold on me and I just, I saw all the athletes wearing it and like what they were able to achieve. And, um, it was just a brand I fell in love with. And I just felt like I had such a, a purpose and a vision, um, that was rare, you know, when I was growing up. So. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it. And the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Jenna Habayev, the chief marketing officer for Beauty for All Industries, BFA for short. BFA is the parent company of the largest beauty subscription brands in the world, including Ipsy, BoxyCharm, and Refreshments, as well as the brand incubator made by Collective. This is a digitally native beauty tech company with a community of 20 million and growing. My guest Jenna has been chief brand officer for three plus years following a CMO stint at a cannabis company. We'll talk about that. Jenna is a Delaware blue hen. She earned her bachelor's degree at the University of Delaware, followed by 11 years working at agencies before moving to the client side for the last seven years. Just a few weeks ago, Jenna was named one of Forbes' top 50 entrepreneurial CMOs in 2022. This is my conversation with a marketer, an entrepreneur, a mother, a fashionista, and a woman who just loves to get out of her comfort zone. This is Jenna Habayev. Jenna, welcome to the CMO podcast. This is a timely episode. You have recently been named to the 2022 Forbes list of top 50 entrepreneurial CMOs. Congratulations. I just want to know, how did that feel? And did you celebrate with your team? I mean, first off, I, I'm still pinching myself. I'm in, in such shock and just so honored to be amongst some amazing and fabulous uh, CMOs that are out there. Um, I, yeah, I still feel like I'm celebrating. My team had like such a cute little party. They had cupcakes with my face on it. Um, oh, everybody did Zoom backgrounds um, with the the Forbes oh. announcement and surprised me. So it was just such a special moment. And yeah, I'm still I'm still feeling the love. So um, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm beyond thrilled. You are among great peers. We've had six of them on the podcast, so you're the seventh. And and we, every one of them was a wonderful, wonderful episode. So congratulations. I love the cupcakes. <laughs> really cute. <laughs> now, I want to start this podcast a bit differently. 
I would like to start by talking about a few of your life and business philosophies. Okay. And the first one is, I've heard you say this, that you must love what you do or find something else to do. So I'd like you to talk about that personally. What's the toughest choice you've had to make to stay true to that philosophy? Well, first off, I love that you're diving into the hard questions first. So thank right. you for well, that. There's a few more coming. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I, I would say a lot of this kind of really goes back to, I was thinking about this. I was like, you know, how did I end up here? And, and and how did I get here? And it goes back to some choices I made when I was younger. And one of the de hardest decisions I had to make at a young age was, do I go into fashion, which is something I just mm -hmm. had so much passion for, or business, which seemed to be a little bit more reasonable and realistic. Like you see a lot more people succeed in business than, you know, fashion's a really hard, hard market to make in. So I, I'd say that was probably one of the first hard decisions I made, but I always sort of kept this passion for fashion in the back of my mind. I was like, I'm going to get there somehow. And so I feel like I fell in love with the creative side of marketing. And I've, I've just had an eye for how can you invent things, reinvent things, um, create passion around something, create feelings and emotion around something. And I felt like I was able to successfully do that in, in marketing and, and starting out on the ad agency side. But I always felt like I was missing this, this initial passion I had for fashion. And so one of the big concessions I made, you know, I, I started on the ad agency route, um, worked at some really big agencies, had some really great opportunities working on huge brands, Tabasco, Burger King, got huge opportunities for my role. Um, but I felt like I was missing this side of, of fashion. And I, I actively made a decision to take a role making less money uh, at an agency that had a fashion brand. Because I was like, the only way I'm going to get into this is if I try and break through in one avenue or the other. And it was really hard to make the, the jump on the client side. So I went to an agency called Jaywalk. One of their brands happened to be BB, which is a, a, mm -hmm. a famous fashion retailer at the time. Um, and I was able to learn everything there was about the inner workings of it, you know, how collections were put together, how marketing worked in the fashion world. And Eventually, my comp surpassed where I was. I moved up in, in in title, and it was the marquee stepping stone for me to then move into the client side of fashion. And so I do think when you think about finding things that you love, it is sometimes making sacrifices and concessions to get there. And when you're in it, it just doesn't feel like work. And I have to say the time I spent um, at Seven for All Mankind and Splendid were probably some of the best years of my life. I mean, it just, it didn't feel like work. It was so much fun. And and yes, I was still learning. And yes, I was still challenged. And yes, I was still building out, out teams, but I couldn't wait to get to work every day. And I just, I think if people can find that intersection of what you're good at, what your genius zone is and what you love, it it just doesn't feel like work. So, yeah. <laughs> so when you've been in situations where you're not, really loving what you're doing. How quickly do you act on that? I am always... Those jobs go up and down, right? You yeah. have bad days, you have good weeks, you know, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. I would say I'm like an eternal optimist. I always try and find the bright sides of things. And I've definitely been in roles or or just in, in time periods at organizations where I have to either find the silver lining or look for another avenue to keep me motivated and inspired. And a lot of that is team. I love mentoring and growing my team. And so even if 
there's something in my work I'm not that excited about or a new challenge that just isn't quite right for me, I will focus my energy in other places to help grow and motivate other people. And I'm I'm pretty good at realizing when there's a moment in time to say, hey, it, it's time to make a change. And, and a good example of that is, again, I, I talked about how much I loved working in fashion with Seven for All Mankind and Splendid. And I'd been five years in retail. Um, retail is challenging, right? It's a little archaic in the way that it works. Mm-hmm. It's not as digitally forward. Um, and I, I had a moment in time where I just felt like, I needed a new challenge and I was doing either my team a disservice or the company a disservice because I, I felt like there was more I had had to offer. And I probably made the one of the weirdest jumps in my career, but I was like, I just need something different. Um, and I took a role in cannabis. And so talk about the wild, wild west, like completely a wild ride. Um, but it just tickled my brain in a different way. And I I, I took the leap um, and I was in it for seven months. Ipsy came and hunted me down and it was mm-hmm. the right the right moment for me but that's a that's a prime example of where i was like you know it, it's ready i'm ready for something new and and I, I i took the lead i looked at your experience at the cannabis company candescent and i mean it was very productive you got a lot done a lot <laughs> what what was your mega learning in that time you were there i would say i mean talk about startup and a startup and a startup and a startup, right? You have a startup company in a startup industry um, with people trying to figure out how to even navigate creating structure in something that is so wildly unstructured. It's it's federally unregulated. There's a lot of legality around it. I mean, it like every rock you picked up, you're like, oh, this is gonna be hard. This is gonna be hard. This is gonna be hard. But one of the things I think it brought back to me that I had felt like, maybe I just hadn't been thinking about as much in my my career was how important it is to create a personal relationship and educate. This is cannabis, maybe not as much now, but at least three years ago and, and, and prior is a really scary industry. People are worried about what it's going to do to them. People are worried about the Ill- illegality of it. I mean, you still have people that are locked up for small amounts of, of cannabis. Um, and so breaking through the fear, educating on how to get people comfortable and having that personal relationship is something you sometimes miss out on when you get in big organizations. So I felt like it ignited this part of me that I, I knew was there, but that maybe I had been more distant from in, in my, my prior role. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, Visit cmo.deloitte.com. All right. Now, the second philosophy, challenge yourself and your team to think about what the world would be like without your company or without your brand. And I love that exercise. In fact, we used that a lot at P&G back in the day. They still may use it. It just was a way to, you know, make you think about your higher purpose, make you think about your role in people's daily life, the impact you're making. So it's such a good exercise. How... I'd like you to wax a bit about that and how that has helped you in your career. Yeah, I mean, as a, a leader of brand, you know, I always think about brand and like, what is brand? You know, is it a thing? 
Is it a logo? You know, what is brand? And I, I really think that brand is a promise of an experience, right? And what is the experience that you want to deliver? And how do you make that experience so beloved and desirable that someone couldn't live without it? And I actually think, you know, brands do that in different ways, right? And the actual physical products that they make that are incredible or super innovative or something that you, you know, is a core necessity in your business. I actually think um, in Ipsy, we're able to do that in a, a wildly successful way. You know, when I think about what Ipsy, truly what we deliver at Ipsy, um, and for those of you who don't know, you know, we're the largest beauty subscription in in the world. But what we do is really inspire self-expression in a very inclusive, democratized way. But we do that by giving people access and the tools to be able to confidently express themselves. And we do it in, I, I would say, probably three big, big ways that I that I think about. One on the access front, it is about not only giving people access by being able to deliver products, you know, across the country in a really convenient, simple way, but we do it at a really affordable price. And when I think about if we didn't exist, we have millions and millions and millions of customers that could not afford the beauty that other people can, or that couldn't actually be able to go to a Sephora or an Ulta because they're either not in their region or they couldn't afford it. And so I actually think we are delivering on something. You know, we we have a lot of people um, that love our brand that are in a lower household income, and we're able to give them this delight and this joy and something like a red lip that just gives you that that vote of confidence that they might not be able to have if we didn't exist. And so I love this idea that we're giving people access in that respect. I think the other piece of it is pairing that with personalization. So what's interesting is uh, from an outsider's perspective, brands like Ipsy and BoxyCharm were beauty brands, right? But from an insider's perspective, we're actually a technology company. You know, our our whole company is built on a proprietary machine learning algorithm where everything we do is about personalizing what what we deliver. And so when you pair this notion of access and affordability to brands that are amazing and awesome that you might not be able to get, and we do the hard work for you, right? We have a killer team that's curating products, but we also have a machine learning algorithm that is saying, hey, let us navigate this for you and let us deliver something that you're going to feel good about that's right for you so you can be your most confident self. So there's this really interesting intersection that I think we've been able to deliver that really kind of harkens back on that idea of like, we are doing something that most companies aren't able to do. And if we weren't here, there's a lot, millions mm-hmm. of people that might not have access to something yeah. like this. Have you ever worked on a brand where you asked that question and you all looked at each other and said, Nothing would change if our brand went away. I have. I may. I won't name the brands. <laughs> I have too. By the way, I have yeah. too. And, but and you know, it, it's a it's a tough look at reality, right? Yeah, and I think there's some categories where it's harder when there's just such saturation. Um, it's a lot easier when you're in a more innovative field mm-hmm. or a field that's growing. But I've I've definitely sat there where I'm like, this is going to be a tough one. So, but I think it's actually a really exciting challenge because. It may not make a huge difference if your brand didn't exist, but how do you resonate in a way that cuts through the clutter, right? And so you can create, like, I think about, this is like old school, but like how Old Spice, like it was your dad's yep. 
products, right? And yep. they were just like, you know what? Let's cut through the clutter. There's tons of competition out here. Like, let, let's figure out a way we can resonate with a core audience and reinvent ourselves. So sometimes that's also a marketer's dream is to be able to do that. Absolutely. All right. The third philosophy, you believe strongly in leading by inspiration and by setting really high standards. I love that. But, you know, how do you, uh, what's your advice for making sure that it lands well with a diverse organization? You know, inspiration and high standards, which I think is the most important job a leader does is set standards and what they say yes and no to. But it's tricky, right? Yeah. Your, Your organization is motivated by different things. You have a diverse group of people, different things, turn them on, turn them off. So how do you go about that to be sure that your, your style of leading by inspiration lands well? I think it's a, a great question. I, I, I would say, you know, th- they can be thought of in two different ways. Um, when I think about inspiration, it's understanding people's motivation, right? So some people are motivated by career progression. Some people are motivated by money. Some people are motivated by learning new things. And so I think understanding your team's motivation helps you inspire your team. And and I also, again, I, I mentioned this, like I'm a, a, a constant optimist. So I really try and lead by positivity. I think that my company thinks of me as like the cheerleader in the company. Um, and so I think just showing people by leading by example of just staying positive and motivated, even in the tough times, you know, you, you can't take everything so serious, especially yourself, um, I think has has really helped me round out that side of, of um, inspiring. I think on setting expectations um, and having high standards, really, this is about pushing people into a place where they can see what's possible, right? And one of the mottos I have for my team, and they hear me say it all the time, is get comfortable being uncomfortable, right? And I think in that, it's not about the idea of being uncomfortable. Nobody likes being uncomfortable, but it's in that uncomfort that you're growing and learning and you're pushing into new, forging into new territories that haven't been explored. And so when I think about this idea of like setting high expectations, it's more about showing people what's possible, not making them feel like, oh my gosh, you're not living up to these standards or you could do better. It's by showing those possibilities that I think it innately creates this curiosity and this hunger to learn and try that then inspires and motivates them. So that's kind of the way I think about that philosophy. No, it makes sense. Now, listen, I want to pivot from your life philosophy to your career path. We've already been talking about it. But I think there's one really curious thing about your your career path. You started in that, on, an, on the agency side. You worked about 11 years and then about seven years on the client side. And when you jumped to the client side, which you've talked about, you went into fashion. The yep. fir- one of the first things you did was you formed in-house agencies Yep. on your two or three brands that you worked on coming out of the agency world. Yep. <laughs> now, I'd like you to, you know, share your thinking there. And has any of that thinking changed since you worked at that first client brand after you left the, after you left the agency side? I think if anything, I have continued to leverage that thinking and philosophy and methodology in all the places I've gone. And I'll, I'll kind of walk you through the thinking around it. Um, so one, I think that there is so much I've learned on the ag- agency side. And what I've seen is agencies typically are more on the cutting edge of like knowing what's new, knowing what's possible, trying new things out. They're able to move much faster. You know, typically large companies and organizations, I'm sure 
you have tons of history on this in PNG with with your legacy there. Um, can be kind of slow yeah, moving dinosaurs. Sure. They're like, yep. come on, like we got to get faster. And so I wanted to take some of the thinking from how agencies work, especially because I had so much inner inner knowledge on it, and bring the right pieces. Not all of of what agencies do makes sense. You know, I will say being now being on the client side and agency side, I'm like, oh, there's so much more I didn't understand how companies work that I probably could have been a much better mm-hmm. agency leader knowing the inner workings of how companies work and what, what motivates companies. Um, but I think the biggest things that, I, that I've learned and, and things that I'm continuing to apply even today are when it comes to being able to leverage data quickly, make data-driven decisions, and apply that to content that you can constantly be optimizing and iterating on, it is too slow to have it outside of your Mm -hmm. organization. And I think you're able to be much more nimble and agile on moving things forward, seeing results more quickly, and then applying this to almost a playbook on how you think about it. And so that's one of the things that that I really built out on... um, on the side when I was in Splendid and Seven for All Mankind. And it's something that we are rigorous around in, in Ipsy, BoxyCharm, and, and all of our brands at Beauty for All Industries. So one of the amazing things is we have six state-of-the-art studios in our LA office. I have producers, editors, our entire social team are just like, they're half content ninjas, half data analysts and just really that that intersection of art and science has allowed us to create this really beautiful environment to be able to read and react. And, and we've had so many wins by leveraging this capability. And I started it more on the brand side because I was hired as the chief brand officer working on the brand side. I've recently, um, very excited to say, I've taken on our entire user acquisition team. And so applying this methodology to growth and growth hacking What's been interesting is we've dabbled with agencies that are even on a paper performance basis and our internal teams have been able to trump them and outperform. Mm. And so now we have this amazing playbook for growth marketing on how can we iterate? How do we optimize? How do we find trends? And how does that bode better for us to acquire new users? And so I I encourage anyone who can actually figure out how to mobilize it to consider it. but I will say there are time and place for agencies, for sure, that I don't think are necessarily right in-house. Um, if you have really specific or meaty projects that you need full dedication to, one of the the, the initiatives we just worked on was um, called Project Member Journey. And we wanted to map out end-to-end state of all of our brands, the entire member journey, and understand where we were over and under delivering to identify pain points for our entire company to rally around. And that... We worked with a, a fabulous. By the way, ex- a great exercise, a great initiative. Good for Real- you. And, and I, every I think company it, should do that. I think it would have been wildly impossible for us to do this on our own. And so, yeah. having that expertise, I think, was crucial to improve our business. Um, and so, I do think it's about kind of picking and understanding what can you invest in and build internally that, from a long term perspective, makes sense for your business, and what are things that might be more short term um, that you want to work with. How do you keep the culture so the creative people really want to stay there and thrive? That's a, a paradigm is that creative people like agencies because they work on lots of different things or yeah. among creative people. There's a lot of diversity in their assignments. So how do you make this a place where those creative people feel like it's home and they love it and they're growing and developing? Well, I would say 
you know, now we have a house of brands, right? So it's not yeah. just one brand and, and really working with our creative team around where are those expansion opportunities. So whether that's um, giving them opportunities to work on multiple brands, whether that is um, allowing them to expand into do new arenas. Like we've had people that want to get into motion graphics. We've had people that want to get into video editing, that want to get in photography. So allowing them to sort of stretch, stretch their skill sets in other arenas. Um, I also just think overall from a business perspective, because we are in such a the cusp of the cutting edge of like what is new and innovative in um, the digital space and in social, our creative team is always working on new things. Like we get entered into alpha and beta tests with the meta group and TikTok. And so mm -hmm. we're able to kind of test and learn new things. So it kind of has that same um, impact that on the agency side that you get to be like first, first uh, in row to try new things out. Um, I think the power of our company, the way that we work with some of our, our bigger marketing partners has allowed us and afforded us the opportunity to really test out those innovative things that, that keeps our, our creative team really motivated and excited. Let's dig into your chief brand officer role a bit more. You've been in it three plus years. You care for three brands, Ipsy, BoxyCharm, and Refreshments, as well yep. as the company's ESG initiative. Sounds like it took on some user acquisition responsibilities as yep. well. <laughs> so with all of that, Jenna... Tell us about where you are focused as the chief brand officer. Where do you spend your valuable time? So I'm in a really interesting intersection in my career right now. So I I spent probably the last two years focused much more on brand content, really figuring out how to create that emotional connection with our, our consumer. And obviously that is still wildly important to me. Um, What's what's interesting is now taking on our full user acquisition. I mean, you know, we're spending a lot of money on the user acquisition front on our side, um, and we are very, very maniacal about um, hitting key targets when it comes to our cost per subscriber mm -hmm. and, and how we we manage our, our spend. I have had to pivot and really sort of reframe the way I think about business in the sense that I am now stretching my left brain. And I am now really diving into the analytical side of things. You know, I joke with my team that I used to live in decks and um, inspiration and mood boards, and now I'm living in spreadsheets and financial documents. And so while it is definitely stretching me in new ways, I do, that's where I'm spending my time is really understanding how can we think about user acquisition, not only from a paid perspective, but really also from how we're thinking about creating high impact initiatives, um, opportunities from even a user flow um, perspective. So how are we bringing people in? How are we keeping them happy? And I think it's it's just been such a exciting opportunity, but also challenging. I'm, I'm used to having the answers. I'm used to easily finding solutions. And this is one of those times where I'm like, let me think about it. Let me go back to it. I need to really understand how to approach these problems or or think about some of the questions being posed to me. But ultimately, I think it's going to round me out and make me such a stronger marketer is really understanding the full spectrum of what we're able to do. So you are still in the doing what you love sphere, right? You're just going to a new space, but your attitude is this is a good space. It's an important space for our company. It's an important capability for me personally. And that's what energizes you. Do I have that right? Yeah. And and I would say because I'm not 
as much of an analytical leader as I would say most of the people in our growth roles, I come at problems at a, in a different way. And I think about them differently. And I, I think it helps me understand how our typical growth leaders would approach things. But I also think it exposes and it exposes and opens up new opportunities on how we can engage with our customers better. Because I, I find that a lot of growth roles are so, um, logistical and rational Mm -hmm. in terms of like being so data first that sometimes you lose sight of ultimately what you're trying to do, which is find great customers that we can really um, delight. How have you evolved most as a leader in the last three years? Oh, see, I knew you were going to just keep, keep giving me some, some, (laughs) they keep on coming. Juicy question. Um, I would say, you know, one of the biggest evolutions point is is this this newer evolution of of stretching and flexing mm-hmm. more of the data driven design. Um, I think the other big piece is you spend so much of your career proving yourself, and um, you know I don't want to say fighting your way to the top, but, sure. but moving throughout your career. And I really feel like I've aimed to spend the last few years in my career letting go of those ideas and really trying to be this motivational, inspirational leader to help people learn, to help people grow. And so it's less about me and my career progression. It's more about how can I find space to allow other people to flourish? And it is, it's, it's a mind shift, right? And I always tell people, I'm like, there's no executive playbook. It's not like someone's like, here's what it's like to be a CEO or a CMO. Like no one tells you how to do it. Um, and there's a point in time where it's, it's not about you, it's about your team. And so I think that's probably been the biggest evolution for me. It's, it's less about proving myself and it's more about supporting and giving my team the room to grow. Tell us about that aha moment, or was it an aha moment where that came to you that it's about your team and your role now is to bring, to bring out their potential? I feel like probably the biggest moment for me was actually when I first became CMO at seven, because I was like, I did it. I got, this is the place I wanted to go. Like, I, you know, currently I don't really have all these aspirations to become CEO. I'm like, this is what I wanted. And when I finally got there, I was like, oh, I can, not that I could take a breath because it was a big job, but I could take a breath. Like, what else, what else am I trying to prove? You know, I, I feel like I finally got into that place. And I think it was almost that moment that allowed me to step back and say, how do I enable others to achieve their dreams? Whether it's a CMO or whatever they want to do, I've been fortunate enough to have some amazing mentors and people that have just supported me along the way that I want to be able to do the same for other people so that they can you know, achieve their dreams too. You spoke about your purpose as a company a few moments ago and the difference you make in people's life and thinking about if your brand went away, what would people miss? I'd like you to Talk about that a bit more. I think your purpose is a wonderful one, and it, it and you can share it with our audience. But it's something about inspiring everyone to express their unique beauty, yeah. and you know that that's really high level stuff. And you do it in a personalized way. But I do want you to talk about you're in an industry that is really dynamic, really crowded, really, really. There's just new stuff happening every day, and then you have all the legacy brands which are doing interesting things. So this is an issue many of our listeners struggle with. How do you differentiate on your purpose? Yeah, I would say, especially when I think about Ipsy. So Ipsy's the brand that we've had for the longest time. Um, we've been around for 10 years. What's been 
quite refreshing is this has been our mission since day one. It actually hasn't changed. It hasn't wavered. I mean, it is not only plastered in along every single wall in all of our offices, but it is something we innately believe and we infuse in everything we do in our culture. And the way I think we really are able to own that and break through the clutter is by authentically living it every day. So just to give you a little history on Ipsy, Ipsy, when we started 10 years ago, one of our co-founders was Michelle Fawn. She was Mm -hmm. a beauty influencer, but on on YouTube. But let's remember that this is like when YouTube was like, what is YouTube? There's some random people in their house doing some weird stuff. You know, like this wasn't YouTube today. This is like the beginning stages of YouTube. And the whole notion when our company was started was about democratizing beauty and truly democratizing it. At the time, and I talk about fashion magazines, there were the magazine editors, there were a lot of the retailers, there were the the big beauty players that were that had this authoritative view. And it was very narrow. There was one look of beauty. There were few shades of beauty. There was one style of hair for beauty. And we set out to change that. We wanted to democratize it. We wanted to put the power back in the hands of the people. And everything we do is about ensuring that it is a company that is about our community. It is putting our community first. It's giving them a voice. It's allowing them to see themselves in beauty. And some of the things that we've we've done as of late even take it further. And so when I think about creating a, a an inclusive environment and de- democratizing beauty, we also want to look at who hasn't had a fair shot at it, right? And so there are some key communities that we feel like have naturally been underrepresented in beauty that we have put a ton of investment and effort to amplify. So one of the things I'm super proud of in the last two years is we've invested over $50 million in Black-owned and Latinx-owned brands. We've even launched a Latinx-founded brand. And we want to do that because we want to make sure that everybody can see themselves in beauty and especially communities that have not had that fair shot. And so we want to continue to forge that path forward and also find other areas that maybe have not been as democratized. I think about um, mental and physical disabilities. You don't usually see that shown up in in beauty. And and I'm so proud that there are brands like Rare Beauty that are really focused Mm -hmm. on, on, on mental health. But I think it's an opportunity for us to continue to forge that forward because, again, when it comes down to it, we're all so unique and all of us should be able to be afforded the ability to feel confident and, and to feel beautiful in our own respects. So, you know, I, I, I feel like I've just been so fortunate to have to be a part of a company that's just been innately ingrained in our, our DNA. Um, but it's hard. It is hard to break that through that clutter if you don't have something really unique. So you have to find that gem. Just like I was talking about, if, if there are companies that maybe people wouldn't care about didn't exist, find that place that you can own and figure out a way that you can, whether it's reinvent yourself or reimagine yourself to have real purpose. No, there's a lot in what you just said there, Jenna, but I would like to draw out this major lesson that, you know, you differentiate on purpose by living it every day. And yeah. living it in a way that is actually a competitive advantage. Yeah. You know, you, you're, you know, in many companies, I, I get asked the question, my purpose sounds a bit generic, but it resonates with our people. It's appropriate for our category. It inspires us. I said, well, then don't worry about it. Just live it better live it. than live your com- competitive set. And then wonderful things will happen. And you're a beautiful example of that. 
Yeah. And I, I think we don't have this mission just to motivate our employees. It's like, we really believe in it. And I, I find the diversification of thinking the type of people we hire. I mean, we have so many international people in our company. It just, we have this beautiful environment of, of human beings that we all love to work with. And, and that's the other thing that's rare is like most beauty companies, it's not always the nicest environment. And we have super smart people in our company that are great, compassionate humans to work with. So it's kind of this, this, um, this beautiful environment that we've, we've created. What are you most proud of in the last three years? Well, I definitely, I think, you know, launching our, our BFA impact ESG focused arm and being able to, um, invest in these key communities, I think has been, mm. it just, it's awesome to watch these founders yeah. flourish and grow and get their products in people's hands and just what we're able to do for them and their communities. Um, that's been something I've been, been really, really proud of. Um, I would say, you know, on the brand and the content side, our team has just been killing it on social. I'm proud to say we are the number three largest beauty brand on TikTok. Um, we focus like when other people were like, I don't know, what should we do here? Let's just repurpose content from Instagram. We were like, nope, we're going all in. We like to be first movers. And it's really, really paid off um, to be you know one of the largest in, in one of the fastest growing platforms. Um I've been super proud to watch how fast our company has expanded, right? You know, I started, we were just Ipsy at a 50-person team. I now have a 90-person team. We have four business units. Um, you know, we are growing and scaling. And, and, you know, obviously with that comes its own challenges, but it's an exciting time to be a part of it. Um, and I just, I couldn't be more proud and grateful to work for such a kind, loving company that really challenges me at least you know on both the art and science mm -hmm. of 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 business so um and then this forbes thing i mean i still like that's just like i'm like wait what is that real like, did that congratulations really again <laughs> that, so everything sounds really great jen anything yeah. not go as well as you would like in the last three years yeah and i would say probably one of the things that was definitely a sidestep for me is i was working at an agency um, probably wasn't the best fit for me culturally, but I kept pushing myself. When you ask about like, how do you maintain positivity or how do you know when, when it's the right time to go? There was definitely a clear sign for me when it was the right time to go. Um, I just pushed myself so hard and just got so stressed out that I got really sick and I was in and out of the hospital. And it was the first time in my life I quit a job without a job. And I just, I was like, I can't, it's not worth my personal health to push myself. And I think that moment also was pivotal for me to think about how I can still do all the things I want to do. I can still try and achieve the success I want, but it's not worth doing it at the sake of my own health. And so when I, whenever I feel like I have either signs of stress or I feel overwhelmed, I have to kind of take that step back because I remember how tough mm -hmm. that was for me. And um, it's hard if anybody's ever gone through any really severe illnesses, you know, I, I don't know how people balance their personal life, their work life, yeah, I know and it. getting through it. It's tough. Yeah. Hey, I want to move to the creative brief. And the first question I have is, what have you discovered in one of your glam bags or beauty boxes that has changed your rituals, changed your habits, inspired yeah. you? Well, first off, I get to try the most amazing brands ever. So I have some absolute favorites. Um, one of the things, I mean, 
as of late, and especially during the pandemic, I just really became obsessed with skincare and just understanding. I'm like, I'm like, okay, there's so many different things. There's retinol, there's peptides, there's niacinamide, there's hyaluronic acid. I'm like, what is all this stuff? And so kind of geeking out on all the different um, formulas and different products out there, trying serums, trying creams, trying masks. Um, so that has been just so fun. And I'm like, it's kind of, I see it's working. Like I feel good. Like I feel like I'm confidently yeah, living so. my best life. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there's, there's definitely been some, some key products I've, I've fallen in love with. Um, there's a, a brand called skin Iceland and they just, mm-hmm. all their products smell so good and they just make my skin glow when it's not greasy. So falling in love with that. I also just, I watch my team and they're so on top of the trends and I'm like, all right, I'll try that poplet all right, let me try that cool new liner. All right, let me like play with my brows and do it up and be a little bit more bold. So I have found just in seeing what's happening trend-wise and 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 obviously getting my monthly products that I, you know, I'm willing to kind of branch out and try new things. And you see people, they're like, oh, you tried this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I like it. It looks good, right? We talked about your life philosophies a few minutes ago. Uh, one is obviously you love to inspire people and help them reach their potential. Who inspires you? Well, I, I know that this is very cliche, but my my mother has been just such a um, a beacon of light for me. Um, she was a working mom growing up. She was one of the first chemical engineers working at female chemical engineers working for DuPont. She got her MBA while she was pregnant with me. Um, she just, I don't know. I, I remember uh, as a young child, I would go into her closet and I would put on her heels and her briefcase and say, Hey, I'm ready to go to work. <laughs> and so my mom always reminds me of that. Um, and so I think, you know, she's really paved this path for me to feel like I could achieve anything that I have. And then I have had such luxury of having phenomenal female leaders. Um, Paula Schneider, she's the CEO of Susan G. Komen. She worked with me at, at seven for all mankind. Susan Kellogg was the president of um, Splendid. Tina Sharkey is somebody I work with. Who, yeah, I know uh, Tina. Sure. Yeah, she, she, she was on our board mm-hmm. um, at BFA. And even Jen Goldfarb, our um, co-chairwoman, or sorry, our chairwoman and co-founder of, of BFA, just some phenomenal female leaders that have just really supported me and, and given me so much advice. What is one misconception about you that people have? Oh, a misconception. I think my husband told me this because we we met working uh, in a working environment. Um, I think sometimes I probably come off more scary than I am because I'm so like, all right, like we're going to do it. We can get to it. And and I just I have such a firm belief that you can do anything if you put your Mm -hmm. mind to it um, that sometimes in, in first interactions, people might be scared of me. And I'm like, don't be scared. Like I'm totally a normal person. I promise. Um, so I think that that, that sometimes is a misconception, at least in first, first instances. What is the first brand you remember as a young girl making an impact on you? This also sounds cliche. Um, but I was obsessed with Nike obsessed. Like I had, I'm no lie. I had Nike ear, uh, earrings. I had Nike necklace. I had Nike rings. I had all Nike clothes, obviously Nike shoes. I took a sewing class in high school and I would, I would screen print and cut out Nike swoosh symbols. Like I think I was probably the first person making counterfeit products. I think <laughs> Phil Knight might come and send me a cease and desist letter because I was making counterfeit products, but I was just obsessed. Like it had a hold on me and I just, 
I saw all the athletes wearing it and like what they were able to achieve. And um, it was just a brand I fell in love with. And I just felt like had such a, a purpose and a vision um, that was rare, you know, when I was growing up. So what was your, what was your sport as a young girl? I was a gymnast. So oh, I, wow. um, mm. yeah, was very competitive in nature. <laughs> yeah. So what are you looking forward to this summer on the business side and on the personal side? I have a couple of vacations planned, so very excited to hit the beach with my daughter. I mean, obviously, we've all been, been kind of locked away. Um, on the business side, we have some really fun new initiatives. Um, we actually have a, a big celebrity curator uh, who's being shot right now in New York that um, we're going to be announcing in the next few weeks. So excited to see that come to fruition for our Glenbeck X program. Um, and then we have some new innovation and features that we've been working on that I really think is going to not only up-level our business, but um, bring some new opportunities for our members to be even more delighted, um, not only by the features, but also some of the new things we're gonna implement from our, our member journey work that we've been doing to hopefully satisfy our members even more. Jenna, thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation on so many levels. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so wonderful and, and just so honored to be a part of this. That was my conversation with Jenna Habayev. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. The first one, be comfortable being uncomfortable. Jenna models that in her role. She's very, very comfortable in the creative area of marketing and the creative area of business. She is learning about data analytics, data acquisition, and she is loving it. She's uncomfortable, but she says that's been a part of her career success. Second takeaway, differentiate on your brand purpose by living it every day, honestly, consistently, authentically. Third takeaway, let go of proving yourself and work on inspiring and developing your team. When I asked Jenna how she has evolved as a leader, as she has gotten more senior, she said, I used to really, really try to prove myself every day now what I spend my time on is bringing out my team's potential. I get it, when you're young, you gotta prove yourself, but the faster you can get to being a leader who helps their team develop its potential, you will be a more effective and a more happy leader. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.